Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. We're here at Real Deal Talk. Uh, All right, so listen. The reason I just did that sound is because now everywhere I'm going in public, I got people coming up, random people coming up to me saying, hey, JD, I'm I'm listening to the podcast, and they go, uh... So I'm famous for doing this this little sound here. So I, I'm going to implement it into the show. Let me know, let me know what you guys think. Apparently, it's becoming a thing. So I'm just going to whatever listeners and watchers want. I'm going to give it to. Them. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, we're here today. Enough about that. We're here with Richie Hale, ladies and gentlemen. This man right here is one of the most world-renowned business <clears throat> masterminds that anyone has ever seen, ever met. And, and, and I've had the pleasure of getting to know this man in the past year, right? Has it been about a year that we've known each other, Richie? Yeah, just about. Just about. Okay, so and if you hear the, you already heard the accent there. And it's, I don't know, it's this, it's this interesting accent. And, and I could just listen to him all day here. You know how that goes. And it's, what do we comedy? It's a British accent, English British, British Australian kind of mixed combo. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is, it sounds fantastic. Okay. It gives me an advantage in any conversation. It that's does. for sure. It totally does. All right, so let me plant the seed here before we uh, before we give you a little quick uh, thing here. Um, Richie is what he's literally famous for, and he's uh, we met through Awaken Church, and more specifically through the Pathfinder uh, program there at Awaken. And the Pathfinder program, as you guys have heard in my prior podcast, is a, um, a, a marketplace ministry within the church for the basically marketplace leaders that uh, will get together for a, a five-month mastermind. In fact, we were at an event last night, um, and so that's just a quick seed about that. But that's where uh, Rich and I met, and he he has now he is famous for buying businesses. And I'm talking not just small little rinky-dink, well, any business you can imagine, but also multi-million dollar businesses with no money out of pocket, right? Is that right? Yeah, no money out of pocket, yeah. Like no money. And and he's famous for saying there are no... There's no rules in, in any of this game. You just, you know, it, when you're doing deals, the, the only rules are the, 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 between the buyer and the seller. And you've obviously got the legal frameworks. But fundamentally, I think people are... They're, 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 they're fixed by this idea that big lumps of cash change hands when businesses transact. Right. And, um, and that just isn't the case. You know, really, you can cut a deal with somebody and, and you've got to figure out what they want and then go after what they want. And that can be a, a variety of different things, some of which will absolutely stun you in terms of what people will transact for. Um, and what you've got to do is find the answer to that question and what do they want? And if you know what they want, then, you know, if you can do it, then you, you may not have to put, well, you won't have to put any money out of your own pocket and not bring in investors and not bring in, um, you will need money and there's ways that happens, but you won't bring in external investors and you won't put money in your own pocket. Uh, but people will get paid. As people will get paid. So there's your there's your seed, ladies and gentlemen. So if you're any type of business person at all, and, and you're going to want to stick around and listen to this one, because we're going to dig into what he just said. But real quick, let me now get a word from our sponsor. And that would be also me and my family with Real Deal Sleep. Well, number one, right now we start in our garage about 18 years ago, and Real Deal Sleep, our mattress store here in San Diego, is now the number one rated mattress store in the country on Yelp. We are the gurus when it comes to helping you get to the next level via sleep, sleep systems. We've got uh, sheets, pillows, mattress protectors. Ladies and gentlemen, if you love the show, first of all, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening, for watching. I, you, I can't tell you how much I appreciated the love, the sharing of it. Um, the, I actually checked some, I, I looked the other day, I, I got a bunch of reviews, I got a five 
five-star ranking, guys. Keep them coming. I can't tell you how much that lights my fire and feeds me for doing what I what I love doing, which is helping inspire people, inspire people to greatness, bringing in amazing guests like Richie Hale today. So I can't thank you enough. Keep talking about it. If I'm out and about, if you want to give me some feedback, I, I you know I love it. If you want to support the show financially, then come down to Real Deal Sleep. Uh, refer somebody here. Go to the website realdealsleep.com. You can actually purchase right from there. Book an appointment with me if you want to. Then we can kind of break it down with zero gravity sleep systems. If either uh, if either you or your significant other snore, we can take care of that. Apnea, reflux, GERD, the whole nine yards. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Real deal sleep. And now back to Richie Hale. Okay, so now before we get into the business stuff, Richie. Yep. He's like, so he comes in this morning, by the way. And it, he had no idea. He doesn't even know what the podcast. I don't think he knew the name until yesterday. Um, and uh, he goes, JD, what are we going to do? So he comes in the office today. I'm like, what are we? I'm like, I'm just going to dig into your backstory. He goes, do you know about my backstory? I said, no, I know nothing. He goes, you know nothing. I said, nothing. <laughs> so he starts laughing. I'm like, why do you have. So I, he goes, well, you know, do you want to know? I'm like, no, 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 no. The way I do it is everybody else, most podcasts, they prepare, they get the information on the guests, they find out what they have. That way they know what questions to ask, right? It's all yeah, kind of, it. it's kind of pre-formatted, right? Oh, very structured. Very structured. <laughs> he goes, no, you don't do any of that. I said, none of that. I literally don't want to know anything about you. So ladies and gentlemen, this is how we do it. You guys know how I do it. Um, you're going to watch me get to know Richie, and therefore you guys are going to get to know Richie authentically on the fly here. So you're going to see initial reactions of this story. Um, I literally know nothing about this man other than he's a brilliant businessman. That's it. All right, so Richie, here we go, bro. All right, give Let's it to go. me now. Let's, Let's go. And, and listen, and we're gonna have to cut this one short today. So he put a he put a, a time constraint on me, ladies and gentlemen. So this is gonna be a challenge for me to get this done this quick. Mm. All right, so you're killing me here, by the way. That's okay. All right, so Richie, go back. Where were you born and raised? We're going all the way, all the way. That's, I know it's a long time. All the way back. Um, I was born in the UK, uh, but I grew up in France. My parents, my dad was a, was a corporate IBMer, and we moved around the world with him. And so I spent a large part of my early childhood uh, in Paris, in France, and that's my first language, and then moved back to the UK um, and went, did some schooling there to learn English, and then went to Scotland and lived in Scotland uh, to do my high school and college. And um, and then moved uh, from there to London, then to Berlin in Germany. I lived in Germany for a while, came back to the UK, moved to Australia, um, lived in there for a while, came back to the UK, then moved to Switzerland for a while, um, South Africa for a while, and then back to Australia, and then eventually the US. And, and since I've been here in the past 10 years, we've spent at least six months in Mexico permanently just like living there for six months which was cool so moved around a bit lived in lots of countries uh, been in a few places so and so all right that was that was a lot and you're skipping around on me already 10 so you've been here for 10 years in the states 11 uh, 12 years in the states now. 12 years yeah. now now why were you going from to to where you kept going back to where great britain well i, I went backwards and forwards to great britain over the years but i came from australia to here 
So, uh, but why go Great Britain to here? Then you went back. Then you went over to Germany. Then you I, went back. In most cases, it was business. So I, I, you know, my idea was that I could travel and I could travel with business. So I thought, okay, well, if I go and get clients in various countries, I can go and live in various countries. And so that's pretty much what I did. So I, I took this idea, having grown up as, as a traveling kid, you know, where I used yeah, to travel a lot. tell me about that, the traveling kid thing. Well, well my parents lived overseas. And, and at one period, I went to school in the UK where my parents were still overseas. And so I used to travel backwards and forwards by plane. And so I'd get, you know, they'd, they'd, I'd fly home every two weeks from school. I was at boarding school and fly home every two weeks on my own. So as a, you know, an eight, nine-year-old, you're getting onto a flight and flying halfway across the world on your own, which was kind of cool because the, the, the chief pilot for one of the airlines, his son was at my school. So I used to get on the aircraft and they put me in the cockpit. No way. In the front. So I'd sit in the jump seat, you know, and fly around the world, you know, as an as a eight, nine, ten-year-old um, to go home every couple of weeks and so that was what I grew up with so moving around from country to country was just the norm from my perspective so when I was at college I thought okay well I started a company at college when I was 17 uh, you know my, my beginning my second year and I, I decided I wanted to go and live down in London first of all so I got some clients down in London and that was great and then I thought it would be fun to have clients in Europe so I got some clients in Germany and so I got to move to Berlin for a while just after the wall came down actually I was over there, and um, that was an experience again. And then I came back to more clients in the UK, and eventually um, I wanted to become a pilot. That was always my dream. And I had a business again in London, and I had the opportunity to – I'd made a lot of money. We sold the company in the end, and, and I decided that I wanted to be a pilot. So I thought I'll go to either Florida or Australia to do the license and the commercial pilot's license. So I chose Australia because I saw Crocodile and D on – TV and I went okay went to the movie saw Crocodile Dundee and thought that looked like a fun place to go so let's go there and so moved to Perth uh, in Australia to become a commercial pilot and uh, did my pilot's license and my commercial and the multi-engine command instrument rating and then started flying charter and doing technology which is where my background is at the same time in Australia and then and so I lived there for a while doing that kind of flying charter and at the weekends I'd you know, do these charter runs out to the mines in Australia in the desert uh, you're taking 10 or 15 guys out in, in a plane in one of the, the, the twins out there and then I heard an ad for the on the radio one day to become a military pilot and that was always my initial dream was to fly, fly jets yeah. for, the, for the Air Force and so I, uh, I went into the recruiting office, you know, I was going between clients and saw the recruiting office on the side of the road. So I pulled in, walked in the door and said, what's this about this pilot stuff? And so they, they took in, that year they took in six and a half thousand people into the intake for pilots. And uh, 11 of us actually graduated two years later. And, and you were one of them. Yeah, we, I was one of them, and, and uh, we end up flying. I flew, flew helicopters for the for the Australian Army at the time, and uh, flew combat rescue um, in both Iroquois and then Blackhawks. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that was that was kind of my flying career, and then went back into industry after that, and back into te technology, and moved at that point back to the UK. So I had a business in Australia. I started that company uh, out of the military. And uh, actually sold it um, to a very large uh, conglomerate in the U.S. And they raped and pillaged me in the transaction. And I lost it? everything. I mean, I, we lost everything. Moved into my mother-in-law's front room with uh, one child and a pregnant wife. And I uh, had to start again from scratch. And um, How old are you here at this point? I was about 31, 32 at and that you, point. And you had been married for how long? 
two years. Two that, years. Yeah, at that point. So and you we, had a new a baby. We had a baby, and, uh, and then we basically went back, back to back. <laughs> And so my wife was just pregnant with a second child, and and we basically lost everything. And literally, so they just clobbered you on the deal. They clobbered me on the deal, and and I've seen the, the engineered transaction a few times now. And they were a big corporate, and and the pension fraud was committed, and a whole bunch of friends. Actually, the guy who did it went to prison in the end for what oh, he really? did to us. Yeah, and I've seen, I've met four people. It's happened to exactly wow. the same structured deal that they do. It's a really brutal transaction. To, to do with people and you can take the whole company off them and just rape and pillage them and that's what they did and so I faced a situation you know I was hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt um, and with no income no assets nothing yeah, nothing and the banks you know my, my private bank at the time phoned me up and said you know let, let's have a meeting we've got to figure out what to do and this was kind of uh, you know on the the Thursday she said to me you've got to come into the bank I said okay I'll come in on Monday and we can figure out what we're going to do which was you know start the process of bankruptcy right. and all yeah. that sort of stuff yeah. and so I thought I've got to start dialing for dollars so I got on the phone and in the company we'd done a project uh, for IBM which had been one of the first business to business e-com sites in the world and had been enormously successful and so I'd been on the phone about three or four hours dialing people around the world that I knew in the IBM network. And uh, this, this call came back and he, this guy said, are you available? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, can you come to London? And we, we, have, a, we have a gig for you in London. And I said, uh, sure. Yeah, I can do it. When do you need me there? And he said, well, can you be here by Wednesday next week? And I went, yes. And at this point, I had no money no, you know, everyone's like maxed out on everything I owned. And I'm sitting there going, okay, I'm going to say yes. I'll figure out the, the second part. So I went to the bank on Monday and said, look, I've got this contract. And they said, okay, you've got a month to pay us the first chunk of cash. And I'm going, okay, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. I'm going to be on the other side of the world. And so I phoned my sister and she put my flight on a credit card for me. And I flew over and stayed with a friend in London and actually ended up leading what was then a, a site called Argos in the UK from a technical perspective. And Argos was a, was a non-food retail site. And it was, this was in the late 1990s. So we were at early internet days yeah. here. And it was doing about 60 million pounds a year. And, and I went in there and we took that company to a billion pounds a year online. And it became bigger than Amazon for a season wow. uh, before Amazon really started to take off. And so it was one of the most successful e-com sites in the world. And uh, so that was kind of how I went back to the UK again. And then I'd been there a while. We'd managed to clean up all the debt and I'd got paid a lot of money and, you know, stuff that going to the um, Western Union, you know, taking the cash, getting paid in cash. So I had to go to these guys that employed me in London and say, you need to pay me in cash <laughs> once a week. <laughs> and they're kind of looking at me going, we need to do what? <laughs> and I said, yeah, and this is why. And, and so they did. And I walked from the cash out their office to Western Union, put it in the bank, and my wife standing at the other end, picking it out, walking it down to the bank at the other end and depositing, because you couldn't do global wire transfers easily at that point. So a lot of those problems to deal with to get us out of the hole, but we paid off, I think, $580,000 worth of debt in the first 12 months. And so, real quick, <clears throat> the business that you owed the money for, yeah. that was the same business that this company was hiring you for? No, so I sold, I built a, a software company in Australia that was fundamentally, it, it, software is used in the interbank clearing system that allows yeah. transactions to pass securely between two platforms. Right. And so Microsoft had approached us to buy it because it was built in Java and it could talk to Microsoft. And then another big company bought us and they'll remain nameless. Um, and so that transaction was a software company that we'd purchased. 
what they then and in that in that company we built this e-com site for another business and it become a worldwide case study for IBM and so that's how people knew of me and so I'd use the leverage of that relationship to get myself consulting work and that's where the consulting work came from just happened to be that between the UK and Australia you had the highest exchange rate um, in terms of the benefits. So the dollar went the furthest of any mm. currency I could have gone with. And so that was one of the reasons I wanted to go to the UK was that I could get the Australian debt paid off the fastest. Mm. So, and so that's what we did. <clears throat> so the question here is, and what I'm getting at is, if that's a separate company, couldn't you have technically just said, hey, bankrupt that and this is different money? Uh, yeah, because at that point I didn't understand structuring. So I was on the hook for everything. Ah, and the way they'd done personally. it. Yeah, the way they'd done it is they managed to transfer some of the debt onto me personally ah, in the transaction and okay. I'd not realized it. And then a lawyer had helped me get to the point where the damage was limited at that point to $580,000 ah. as opposed to several million because we were doing quite well. And so there's a lot of money on the table. And so, and but effectively, I managed to get myself down to that much debt. And then I was able to pay that off. And the bank bankrolled me for, for 14 months. I think it took us to pay the $580,000 off. That's what I was thinking. Like, hey, why, why couldn't you just. Yeah, yeah bankruptcy in Australia, it, it comes through to you personally. It's very difficult to isolate it completely. You can yeah. do it. I didn't know how to do that at that point in time. Yeah. yeah. In and retrospect, so, you, do you. I mean, obviously, you paid them off. It kept a relationship with the bank, which yeah. is very important. Well, that's it. You, you've got to keep that going. And, yeah. and because I, you know, I came back eventually to Australia and, and created more yeah. business with the same private banker, actually. And so she stayed with me for, for the great. whole journey. And okay. So now, now you jumped way ahead on me. <laughs> you really did, like really far. We're already three businesses in, uh, two acquisitions. Mm -hmm. Um, you're over here in Australia uh, selling companies. All right, go back to why were you originally traveling? Was, was your dad traveling a lot? Like my, my, my dad was in business with IBM, and so they moved him around, ah. and we moved with him as a family. So Got it. We, he just said, right, you're going to go live there. And we okay, we go live there. And so that was where my life started. And so everything for me for travel was normal. And so I just grew up with that. And yeah. my kids have done the same thing. Yeah. You know, they, it's normal for them. So they've starburst around the world. And so that was kind of the, the, the preset that your parents bring you into is this yeah. idea that you can travel and just get up and go. Yeah. And you can deal with whatever visa issues and, you know, whatever you need to deal with, you can deal with. And they're not frightening things to do. So you come at this for the kid with that belief system in place where you've moved and moved and gone to school after school after school. And so you're not afraid of these environments anymore. So for you, it's just completely normal. Yeah, it's, and that's what I was getting at was because that's like for someone like me, crazy, but for you it was completely, it became normal. So, so that's all I knew. I didn't know anything else. And so it's often that's what you start with is what do you know? Yeah. And that's what I knew. Yeah. And we were programmed from day one and we're programmed pretty much by our parents. That's good, right. Good or bad. Yeah. Good right? or bad. Good or, good or bad. Yeah. Most, most quite frankly, are kind of bad. Like in a, Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I always laugh. My mum was, you know, you can do anything. That yeah. was always a statement every day. My dad says, get a good education, get a job. Yeah. And so I had the conflict between mm. those two different paradigms. But in the middle of that, he moved around under IBM's umbrella. And we just went to different countries and just lived in different places and went to schools that didn't speak your language. And that was a norm. And so you just got used to that. And so that was kind of, okay, so you go to a country that doesn't speak the language, so what? 
Yeah, you, how, you many, how many languages do you speak now? I, I speak, well, I speak two fluently. I speak French and English, but I also used to speak German. When I was living there, I went and learned German. And then when I lived in Switzerland, I learned Swiss German, which is fundamentally different from German, even though people think they sound the same. They're a completely different language. And it's not a written language, which is even more challenging. So I ended up with three and a half languages, you know, um, as I was growing up. Yeah. And I imagine the German would come back if I landed on the ground I'm in sure. Germany fairly quickly. Yeah. And then your brothers and sisters? My sister lives in France still to this day. France. As, as, as does my mum. And so they speak French. You know. Where's dad? Dad's passed away. Ah, uh, yeah. He sorry passed to hear away that. about 12, 14 years ago now. Okay. And now give me your childhood. How, where the, you said dad was get the grades, get, get a job. Oh, big time. Mom was like, you can do whatever you want. So tell me about that dynamic. Like, how did it, how did it mold you? Like, which one did you, obviously you went towards what mom was saying. Well, I lived with this get a good education, get a job kind of idea. So I, you know, my dad sent me to college. I didn't want to go to college. I had won a scholarship in, in the UK when you're growing up. And I was at high school there. You can win this scholarship with the Air Force. And it's called a flying scholarship. And they mm -hmm. teach you to fly at a basic level. And then you, at summer camp, at summer holidays, you go away to RAF bases, Air Force bases, and you get to sit in the back of the jets. And so they just push you through. And so by the time you come out of school, you're already kind of crafted into what they can work with. Yeah. And so they take 20 kids a year and push you through this program. So me, for me, everything was Air Force, Air Force, Air Force, Air Force. And my dad said, you know, no, you're not going to the Air Force because it's a one in 600 chance you'll get to fly jets. Yeah. So you need to go and get a degree. And so he applied for university for me. And, you know, when I was at, at grade 11, yeah. and in, in Scotland, you can go to university a year early. So I went to university at 16. And so I, I, I got this application and then I didn't do any interviews or anything with that. I, I just got this acceptance letter one day that you've gone to, you're going to university. And in the UK, you've got the high school system, which is you've got the private school system and there's a, what they call the old schoolboy network. Yeah. And if you're going to the right school and, you know, so the, 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 uh, the uh, director of the university phoned my headmaster and said, will Richie pass? And because I was at the right school and the headmaster said, yes, that was me. My entry into the degree was just based on two guys who knew one another who went to school together, you know, 40 years ago <laughs> saying yes. And so I got this acceptance letter at the end of grade 11, you know, to go to college. And so that was my start of my college you know, so my dad was like, this is it. And, and I you, went into technology. And you weren't that happy about it. I, I, I wanted to be a pilot, you know, and he's going, no. What was know. mom doing at this point? Mom was going, okay, you need to do what your dad says <laughs> at that point. But, you know, but she still kind of said, you can do anything. You can create a business. You can, you yeah. know, the, the world's your oyster. You can go anywhere with this degree. You can do anything. Right, right. And so, and that's proven to be true. I've been able to go all over the world because I did the right degree. So in retrospect, this was a great thing. It was a good thing, uh, but ultimately, you know, the constraint of get a good education, get a job drives you into this employee mentality, right. uh, which translates in business terms into the consulting mentality where you're selling time for money all the time. Even though you're selling time for thousands of dollars an hour, you're still selling time for money. And so that was a lot of part of my career as a consequence of that. But the you can do anything means I then picked that business up and carried it around the world and just went to different countries because I could. Okay, so then... <clears throat> So grade 11, he gets you into college. Where, when did the pilot thing come in? After, I know you skipped ahead, but now when, I'm, 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 I'm backpedaling. So at high school, I did the, the, the flying scholarship, and then I went to college. And I kind of high school, you did the... the, the yeah, they, they take 20 high school kids. Okay. And it's a really cool program. They teach you to fly. 
which is pretty cool. And then they send you to the RAF bases, the Air Force bases, and you get to sit in the back of the jets when they go flying. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> when they're doing instructional flights for students, you get to sit in the back. And so as a 15-year-old, you're flying around in the back seat of fast jets, you know, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and oh, helicopters yeah. and Herculeses yeah. and all sorts of different aircraft, you get to fly in the back of these things, which is pretty cool. And That's so amazing. they take 20 kids a year and push you through this program. This was like, I don't know, 40 years ago now, 35 years ago. And so that was that was where my love of flying really started mm. to grow. Okay. But my dad said, you got to go do, do a degree. So my assumption was I, that was it. My flying career was over. And so I started to get into this this idea that I could do a business in technology. And so at the end of the first year, my dad helped me set up my first company, helped me get my first client. Oh, wow. And so at the end of my second year, I was already working. By the time I got to my fourth year, I had staff. So my university was to turn up in a suit, you know, halfway through the day, do the lecture and then go back to a client. And sometimes that meant flying down to London or flying up from London to go to college for a few classes and then flying back again and having staff. And so my college experience was not most people's college experience. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice cars. We were doing making a lot of money very, very fast. And this is because you had set around 17, 18. Yeah. yeah you had your first company. Yeah, that's right. So that was at 17. I, I created my first company when I was 17, Lateral Software Designs. It was called at uh, 17. And so I sold that business just after I graduated um, when I was 20, late 20s, early 21, I think. 20. Wow. So that was just, and we, a lot of it was luck. We were in the right, right technology wave at the right time, and we got to do some stuff which was pretty cool in those days. Um, and so we ended up in a very unique spot. And so Richard, who was my business, who became my business partner, and myself built this company, this service company that did this stuff, and eventually uh, they bought it, Siemens bought it off us. And so... Um, and so when was the charter flying? Did it come so, after this? Yeah. So once I'd sold the company and, and I was sitting there going, okay, what do I What'd do? What did you sell it for? Uh, can, a, you, can you name some yeah, numbers a, here? A few million pounds. <laughs> a few mil- what, what's a pound to a dollar? Oh, well, it's one to one. Oh, it is? In those days, it was a lot of money. Yeah. And so, but I had nobody around me who knew anything about me. And, you know, I just ended up with a serious amount of money. Yeah. And so I wasn't particularly wise with the money at the time. And I, no. you know, myself and we, we went off to, um, to Australia and I said, right, I'm going to go and spend money on flying. And so I went to a, a school and, you know, wrote the check for the full amount and just said, right, you know, this is what we're going to do. And so we lived in Perth and, and I, I flew every day learning to fly, you know, everything through the multi-engine command instrument rating, the whole shebang instructors. So this is low twenties now. Yes. And the so money was burning a hole in your pocket. You needed to spend it. on. Well, and, and then I, then somebody heard what I'd done in the UK and said, can you do this in Australia again? And I said, yeah, okay. So I started a consulting business in Australia doing a lot of this stuff again. And so I was flying at the weekends and then, so I was flying during the week initially. And then once that finished, I, I did some charter work at the weekends and then worked in technology again in, in, uh, in Perth. And that's when I heard the ad on the radio one day, you know, when I'm driving between clients, um, I heard this ad for, you know, the army's looking for pilots. And I just went, okay, and there's a recruiting office halfway, you know, mile in front of me. I just pulled in and just walked in the door and said, you know, what's this pilot thing that you've got going on? Because I recognized that the age limit was 26 for yeah. this particular opportunity. And, and so I wasn't okay. now too old. And so I just jumped straight in. And then, you know, that process started. So how long were you in there? I did six years. Six years? In the military, yeah. Wow. 
And so I came Did you also out. do the consulting while you were in the military? No, I, I basically got the opportunity to walk away. Going into being a pilot, because I knew the odds were, were, were slim of getting through, right. um, I just burned every bridge behind me. I mean, I sold everything. I mean, I, everything. Everything. I had nothing to go to other than my bag in my hand. When I walked into the officer training, I had nothing outside of that bag and no connection to the outside world. Everything had been cut off, and I just went, right, I'm coming in to, to, to win at this and succeed. Is that what the main thing? Was it, is, it was a challenge? Well, you know the odds are 600 to 1 going in the door. So you know that the odds of getting through are pretty slim. Yeah. And we knew the chop rate going in. And so I went, okay, I've got to go in, all in. And so I went all in. And the guys that, that, that were at the end were the guys that went all in. And they're the only guys that left at the end. No kidding. Because the attrition rate is, is high, especially in the early parts where people get washed out for all sorts of stuff, medical yeah. issues and all sorts of stuff. And then you've got a few hundred of you, you know, you, you start in the office training piece. And then by the time the guys get to fly, you're down to 21, 22 of you that actually get to start the flying training. And then there's 11 of you left at the end. And so the chop rate is, is high wow. all the way down. And so once we got flying, um, you know, you're in the, the military training program. You know, they teach you to fly the aircraft and then they teach you to fight the aircraft. And then you get sent to the squadron and you turn up at the squadron and they give you the keys to a $20 million aircraft and say, go flying. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a cool environment. And so <clears throat> looking back at this, uh, Richie, I mean, this is this is a testament to the to the type of man that you are, like the type of person that you are, like the perseverance of coming in there, knowing six hundred to one. What yeah. would you attribute to the fact that you made it? Give me what you like. What do you have it, in it, you? What did your dad or mom instill in you? Was, it was it was actually very simple when it came down to it. At the end, you know, everyone thinks, oh, you've got to be super coordinated, you've got to be super fit, you've got to be all these things. Right? You're a Type A personality. Everybody in that room is a Type A personality by default. You, you're not in the room unless you've got that. The second thing is you've got to learn faster than the average bear. So the way the training works is they show you something, then you have to get a chance to to, to show them. And then you have to be able to repeat it. And so everything you do is on this show. They show you, you show them, repeat. And so they're layering on from this known to unknown position every single day. So every day you fly, you are learning something new. And you have to be able to reproduce what you learned yesterday and the day before and the day before. And what most people can't do is they can't absorb that information that fast mm. and repeat it on a repeatable basis. So a lot of guys got scrubbed because they plateaued in their learning. And there's a, there's a curve that you can go up the curve and then you plateau out and it's called a learning plateau. And what happens is a lot of guys just plateau out too early. And so if they don't have the, the raw guts to get in there, then you, you plateau out and you just can't learn fast enough. And so most of the guys get washed out because they just cannot learn at that rate for that long because it's an 18 months to two year program. Wow. Yeah. And you have to learn stuff every single day. And, you know, I, I plateaued in the last two flights of the whole training program. And so I failed the final handling test, which is the only flight I failed in the whole thing, okay. which is the very, very last one. And I credit to my instructor, a guy called Cy Thorne, who, who, you know, dragged me kicking and screaming across the line and, um, you know, got me back in the air because you're allowed one remedial flight. 
and then you have to reset the test again. And so you remember him going out, and usually there's hours of prep for a flight, and you sit there and you go, okay, now I go out and prep everything I've learned. And Simon walked up to me and said, right, we're going flying. I said, okay, what's the prep? And he said, no prep, we're going flying. And we just went out into the low-flying area and just you know, hack-flicked and zoomed the aircraft around the low-flying area for an hour and a half and just had fun. And that relief allowed me to then step up again for the final handling test. And not only did I have to do the test again, I did it with the, the standards officer, which is the most senior instructor there is, Scary Gash Lee, the guy's name was <laughs> Gary Lee. And, you know, we're terrified of this guy. And I was the, he was my, you know, he was the instructor in the flight. And I remember going out going, seriously, you know, this is the hardest flight you can ever do. <laughs> and there's Gary. So, but it was actually, it turned out to be one of those days where you just, you hit the top performance because I had the chance to have a break. Yes. And I thank Cy for that to go, I mean, literally, I just did not want to go flying. And he dragged me out there and got me through. And then you arrive at the squadron with wings on your chest. And it doesn't say just passed. Yeah. You know, you've got the, you yeah. get the wings. And then they give you a $20 million aircraft. And then you start to really learn how to fly and how to fight the aircraft. And, you know, what this actually really looks like. And, and you grow in that period. And then you, you're operational for a, a number of years. And so, Richie, this, there's something, there's really something profound here in this story. You know this, right? Because it all came down to the guy that dragged you up to have a, like a, like to kind of have a break, a refresh, to yeah. just fly and not worry about it. Yep. Yeah. Which is what recalibrated you. Completely. And, right? And it, you, you can never do these things on your own. And, and one of the things I've learned in business and in life is yes. a team sport, you know, and you need those people to come next to you every now and then when you trip up and fall over. And, you know, one of the things that's nice about the church is is that happens. You know, you've got this this community around you. And I think a lot of people who fall and they don't get up because there's nobody next to them when they trip. Right. And they got nobody pick them up. And that was the first time I really experienced that. And in the military, that becomes part of life, you know, everyday life, because it's it's so such a tough environment to live into. And um, all the way through pilot's course, the guys that you're on course with are the guys picking you up, you know, and keeping you moving. But I, I didn't have many problems on course right until the very end and that was the first time where someone really came alongside me picked me up and dragged me across the line kicking and screaming um god i love that story man i really do because it's it's so it just parallels to everything in life and business especially life life's life's oh, hard yeah life you get thrown things at you and and, and you get knocked over and you're going to get knocked over it's just a fact of life yeah the question is will you get back up again that's correct and a lot of people don't get up they don't get up and a lot of the reasons because they don't have somebody there to help. Hey, let me help you. Let me help you. Up. That's right. Who've been there before you? Who's and been they, there? And and they can drag you out. And the instructors, you know, when you come back on the other side of that, you know, as a senior pilot, you you see this happening and you pick guys up and carry them forward. But that's the process. Isn't that amazing? It's I love cool. this. It's very cool. Yeah, yeah, this is an incredible story. Yeah, because it it really boy. I'm a, and I'm a ha hammer this home because so many people watching and listening, we don't have that support system. We just oh, don't have it. You, you've got to have it. You've got to have it. Because if you don't, you, you get to these points in your life where things go wrong. And it doesn't matter whether it's a business or a personal scenario. And unless you've got people around you who've actually walked that path or walk next to you while you're on the path, you, don't, you just don't know whether you can get back up again. And sometimes you've got no options. You've got no hope. You've got no, and you need people to kind of get yourself, dust yourself, slap you around the face and kick you out the door again. And, and a lot of people don't have that, particularly entrepreneurs and, and those guys. They find themselves in real holes, and they never actually turn around and go help. 
exactly and you have to because you can't get up sometimes it's because you take the hit and it's it's hard and i've taken a few hits over the years (laughs) and you're still taking them oh you do you You constantly take them but you've got to get up and you, you got to get up. You, you, it's not what happens to you. It's how you respond to it's what how happens. You, 100%, man. And I'll tell you what, since being at Awake, and I know you just said it as well, but so for the prior 18 years of me owning and operating a, a company here in San Diego, you know, I always felt as though I don't have any, I don't have anybody other, of, of course, my wife, my mom, but I'm talking like guys like you, like since I've been to Awaken, man, you see me, I ask you questions, guys like Frank, guys like Colin, I have a Support you got a system around got, me. That's right. You got a network of guys. Some of them are, are way ahead of you. Way ahead. But they'll turn around and they'll go. Okay, Absolutely. You can you can solve this problem. Let's go, and and let's go again. And, and I hate to see people get knocked over and not get back up again. Mm. And that's a real challenge for people, especially entrepreneurs. Yeah, totally. Because let me let me tell you something. You make that decision to be an entrepreneur. You better be. <laughs> you're going to get punched. It's just a fact. It's just a, you're going to get be punched hard, and you're going to get punched a lot. Yep. Right. All right, that was that's what I mean. Okay, so now, now, so you got through the thing there. Then, then you went on for because that was about two year training, right yeah, there. Yeah, and then I spent four years at the squadrons. At the squadrons. Yeah, and then I hurt my back playing rugby, um, and that was the end of my flying career. Effectively, I put three discs out in my back playing rugby, and so <laughs> they said you can't, you, because you have to be a soldier first and then a pilot yeah. second yeah. in the army. The Navy said, I'll come over and fly for the Navy, and I just thought, no, let's get out. Let's get let's get on with the next part of my life. Um, you know, being a being an aviator in the military is fantastic, but it's a young man's game, and it it's is. not a married person's game. Mm. Because you know, Oh, people, were you married at this point? I just got married towards the end, just before I hurt my back. And um, so, you know, at that point, you've got you, you're in that scenario, and you're going, okay, what do I do um, with a family? You know, yeah. we didn't have kids, but yeah. you know, we were married, and it's like, okay, now I've got somebody else I'm caring for, and and then mm. you're walking into the office on a Monday, and then you're gone for for months on end, right? Right. And um, and that point, I'd been away about ten months a year on pretty oh, wow. regularly. Wow. And uh, so when I hurt my back. Um, it was like, okay, you're now in the op space, you know, flying a desk for a while. And then they said, right, come back and fly. And I started that and I just went, okay, this is time to go now. It's time to move on and to the next part. And did, and did you get like a medical? Uh... They, they offered me a medical discharge, um, which I, I kind of half took, but I got out anyway. Yeah. And, and one of the things about the medical discharge is I couldn't earn more than a certain amount of money. So I said, no, I won't take that. I'll go and do my own thing. And so they put me back into the technology space. Mm. Uh, they basically said to me, what do you need to learn to get back to where you were when you joined? And so they'd given me a credit card and say, go train yourself. Oh, wow. And get, get where you want to go. And, and so I got an opportunity to go into a, a part of the technology. IBM was launching out into a new area. And because of my relationships from the past, I phoned up and they said, look, you can go to this meeting and learn about this strategy that they're doing. It's only IBM staff, but you're the last person to arrive and you're, you're never there and you can you leave early, but you can go listen. And so I sat in the back and listened to the IBM strategy that was, as, that was being laid out about where they were going next. And I was the first business partner in the world in that space for wow. them. And that's how we got some of these big deals and got into these spaces where we got recognition worldwide for what we were doing because we were the first guys at the table. And, and so you had mentioned something where um, 
if you took a medical, a complete medical discharge, you could only earn so much. What does that mean? Like in the civilian world? Yeah, they, they basically say, look, we're going to pay your salary for you know the rest of your life, effectively, but this is what it's ah. going to be capped at. And no, you can't work because you're on disability. Oh. And so I said, well, I don't want to limit this. Right. So what's my choices? And they said, well, we can train you back to where you are, and then we have nothing to do Got with it. you after that point. And so I took that choice. That's interesting. I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want no. to be limited in what I was doing. And I went. Hang on a sec. You know, like you're you're saying, I can't do all these things. Or you can say, we'll draw a line, and it's not our responsibility. But we'll give you a credit card so you can go train yourself to get back to where you were. And I went. Okay, I'll take that option. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I did that, and and they put me back where I was, which was wow, kind of cool. It's amazing. And, and how did you meet your uh, wife? Um, I I was. Uh, at a bar, actually. No way. <laughs> My first wife was was at a bar, and um, yeah, we were you know sitting there one Sunday afternoon, and this pair of legs walked past me, and I went, <laughs> <laughs> "Whoa, I like those pair of legs." So uh, yeah, I met her there, and and um, but you know we we had two kids together, and then she passed away when oh. the kids were very very young. So they were three and five uh, when they passed away when she passed away. Mm. And so uh, that was that was shortly after I left the military, and yeah. we'd been traveling around the world a bit, and come back to Australia. And then she had an epileptic fit one day, oh man, and passed away. So I had a three and a five year old, wow. and became Mister Mum for a while. No kidding. How did that go? It, it's a, it's a, you know I take my hat off to, to single mums. Yes, I mean because you, you, it's it's hard it's hard work, and uh, I was pretty well off, so it wasn't a real problem. Um, but it, you know it was uh, it was a challenging time in, in my life. Mm. And um, you know, going from working and traveling and all that to to being at home and, and basically looking after two kids full time uh, was what that transition. But I, I started to get bored. I, I bought started by companies and <laughs> do stuff round about the, the traps to get myself interested. Got into property development and various other things. And where were you living at this point? We were back in Australia then. In Australia, so, yeah, I'd gone back. And how, to how old were the kids? Kids were three and five wow. when my mum passed away. And. Um, so that was a that was a transition point in your life I'll where, say. you know, a lot of what you think is important, you suddenly realize is not important. Wow. And so now you have a perspective uh, on that. And, and that testimony, that, that period of recovery, I was doing a lot of speaking as well at the time uh, on platforms in Herbalife and spaces like that. And so I was, I, if you can be prepared for anything like that, I felt relatively prepared and then helped the kids walk through that. Uh, to a certain degree, that that they came out pretty unscathed. One of them came out unscathed. The other one is is, is a little more challenging. But um, yeah, so that was the older know, one. The older one probably. The older one was good. The younger one was not. Oh, that's interesting because um, and uh, there was all sorts of challenges with her family and all that sort of stuff that came out yeah. after that. And so yeah, so that was a, that was a bit of a transformational time in my life. And a lot of what I was doing in the in the global consulting space, I couldn't do anymore because I had two kids. And even though some of my clients who were around the world said, look, we'll fly you around the world with us, with your kids, and, a, and an au pair, which they did, uh, that I just went, no, this is not, not going to work. And so I basically dropped out of that and, and moved into the entrepreneurial space full time. So did that kind of force that hand? It forced the hand into doing something where I was at home a yeah. lot of the time. And so internet marketing started to become the thing I dropped into and, and started to move into that full time um, when the kids were young. And that was 20 years ago now. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And so looking back, would you say that that was, you know, as tragic as it was, like kind of like a 
almost like a God story of how it kind of nudged it changed you the, the it changed the, the trajectory whole... of my, my whole life. I've been an entrepreneur because I've been, in, but I've been more in the management consulting space, yeah. and and software <laughs> space up to that point. And here I moved hard into internet marketing. I went to conferences. I spent about one hundred and fifty thousand a year on personal development and conferences and programs and all that to kind of get up to speed in that space. And so I, I'd invested heavily in in that area, and I uh, thought, right, this is this is the way I'm going to go. And mm. so, and it also was the, my introduction to to faith and Jesus, and that 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 occurred. was my next question. Yeah, so that occurred over her period of death. She was a Christian, I wasn't. Ah. You know? And so um, there was a lot of things that happened in that period that started to me to ask questions. And you know, I used to take the kids to school. And we'd sit on a bench outside and pick them up after school, and there was this like bench. And you know, Carolyn, who's my current wife, was sitting next to me. She was an ex-pastor, and so I started asking questions, and she started answering questions. This is at the school. Yeah, well, we're sitting on the yeah. outside waiting to pick up our kids, and so her youngest and my oldest were friends at school, and that's how we met. And so she started asking answering questions about. Jesus and you know faith and and those types of things that I'd had from this event in my life without yeah. more questions than answers and she so started to provide answers and so that's how our relationship began sitting on a school bench at, you know primary school listening to the kids picking up the kids wow that's so amazing that was uh, now oh, um, okay okay so tell me how years ago tell me how that progressed give me the like, uh, would you meet on the bench every day? Well, that's that was where it started. We met on the bench every day, and, and every as a day. as a Mister Mum, you go into all the kids' events. You know that all the mums are at. Yeah, you know yeah, all the birthday parties and all that. And so, <laughs> yeah. I, I got to got to get to know her in, in that environment, and then um, you know we because the kids wanted to hang out as well, kind of made it a bit convenient. And so that's kind of how the relationship started, and um, you know we went from there, and eventually. We decided that you know this was for us, and she had two boys. I had two boys, and so uh, we decided to get married and move out of the area we we're in, just to kind of change the atmosphere, and move down to the beach um, on the coast. All right, so hold coast. on, hold on, hold on. How long had you been talking on the bench? Like, we, 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 the were first, two, we were two years, years before we got there. married. Two what, years, was, what was the first move when you said, "Hey, let's go grab a bite to eat" or something? Well, it was like, "Let's go grab a coffee," and so we started meeting for coffee. How, how many bench meetings before the coffee proposal? Oh, I can't remember. I can't remember. But you know, you meet someone details every day. You meet that I need, my watchers and my listeners need, Richie. But you're meeting someone every day after school, you know, and, and so you build up a relationship and, you know, you go from not meeting them occasionally to actually being intentional and having conversations. Then we had coffees and dinners and, you know, and so the relationship went for there. And so then who we kind asked of the first coffee? Was it you? Oh, yeah, it was me. It was you. <laughs> <laughs> and then, okay, so then how many coffees before you asked for the dinner? Oh, I can't remember. Come on, Richie, you know the answer to this. <laughs> it was a few. Don't play coy on me. Wifey's going to be listening to I mean, this. The challenge is, is you, you know, you're both <laughs> single parents, and yeah. you've got, you know, the kids to deal with, and so it became a complex. And you know, we had some friends which were really good, and they kind of created scenarios because they had kids that were in the same class, and so they'd say, well, why don't you both come over for dinner so all the kids could hang out? Yeah. And and so that yeah, because that's a tricky situation. Oh, it was very difficult. You know, as a, as a single parent, you got all these dynamics you don't even think about. Yeah, and just creating time together is actually quite difficult. 
And so, and so we had friends that, that helped us out there. How were the kids on both sides here? Were they like, whoa, what are you doing, mom? What are you doing, dad? There, 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 was, a, there was a bit of that. There was a bit of yeah. that. But, it, it, you know, blended families, you know, they t- use the term blended families, which is interesting. There's no blending at all. There's two biological families that are living together. Yeah. And uh, you, we learn a lot about how those dynamics work. And I think one of the things that, that I'll say in blended families is what we learned very, very early on is to recognize the biology the biological linkage in the family and so carolyn would do stuff with her boys and i'd do stuff with my boys and then we do stuff together mm. and so the recognition of that and the who had authority over what kids became a real mechanism that was the recognition of the biological difference that allowed the blending to actually work mm. and, and that to to work out quite well and so we, we the kids were you know boys are easy because they, they don't carry you know, hurt or anything like that. They fight and then it's over and let's play the Xbox, let's go. You know, and that was kind of what happened on a daily basis. So it, it became, you know, an environment where they respected one another and they recognized what was going on and we, we maintained the biological family difference and that, I think, was the thing that worked. And so how did you know how to do this? Go, get into Trial this, and man, error. Because there's people that are watching and listening that are going through this. So, so I went in with this, uh, you know, because my parents had been married, you know, my whole life, you know, yeah. And, and I, I kind of came from this vanilla, you know, I've got a sister and we, you know, you've got this atomic family idea. And so when I went into the blended family and married, I assumed that there was going to be this atomic family. And it very quickly became apparent that that wasn't the case. Mm. And so we read a couple of books and one of the things that we, we, we stumbled on this idea of the biological separation and the biological recognition and going, okay. Carolyn's going to do stuff with her boys and I'm going to do stuff with my boys. That We're going to make that a regular thing and yeah. then we're going to do stuff together. And it was that separation that actually made the blending work. And so over the years, we maintained that and the who had authority over the, which kids became a, a key part of that as well. And so that was... That's interesting. Yeah, so you, you're running the two families in yeah. one family. And you've got to remember that we were the guys that get, decided to get married. The kids didn't decide to get married. Right. Okay? And so we prioritized our relationship as the most important thing. And then the two families is the next thing. And then the whole family is a unit afterwards. And so you've got this real focus on making sure that your marriage... Because if, if you look at success rates of divorce divorcees, it's low. Yes. Or widower. Second marriages, it's very low. Second marriages. Second marriages. You know, because Carolyn was divorced, I was, I was a widower. And so that second marriage, the success rate is very, very low. And so I went, okay, how do we increase the odds? Mm. And so we made the marriage, our relationship, the main thing. Okay, so that was it. We created a time for each other, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And then we said, right, the biological families are then important. Okay, so we recognized the biological families. And then the final piece was, okay, we've now got this whole family, yeah. which is the family together. And that was the third priority. And so that was kind of the success for us of, of what made it work. And recognizing that blending in terms of this, you know, universal archetypal family idea in that it really isn't, it didn't work for us. And I imagine that's the case for most people is they, you know, what you want is the, the kids to respect one another, hang out together, but we don't expect them to be married in, in the sense of their real brothers and sisters. Right. And that will either come or it won't. And that's their choice, not mm. yours. And you can't force it. And so we didn't. And that worked out quite well for us. So it's a real, it's a learning curve for people that, that blended family idea is a real learning curve and recognition that the kids are unique in themselves. And so I basically 
took the, the process with her kids to say, I'm going to support you. I'm going to recognize you. I'm going to, you know, drive you to be successful, but you need to choose your relationship with me. I'm just going to be consistent. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'm just going to be consistent every single day. And that, that's, that's proved to be very, very beneficial. I've got a great relationship with her boys. And because I, I, I was like that, you know, and, and um, it's good to see them flourishing now. And now, did in the beginning, did the boys resent you at first? Did you did you have any like butting heads? Yeah, we, of, we like, had a little you? bit. We had a little bit of that, but most of the the time they were. We moved into a really glorious environment by the beach, and so the beach life was so it, that helped. Glorious, a lot, I love that. You know, word. and we had twenty nine kids on the street. We moved into. Oh and wow! So they, it was a fabulous place to to grow up for the kids. You know, we were literally fifty yards from the sand. In the ocean, everybody became part of the, the Surf Life Club. We became lifeguards. The kids did their bronze medallions. You know, the whole community wow. was really tight, and that helped a lot. Um, you know, twenty nine kids on the street. You can, you know, yes. They, and and the road was in a place where the weekends we'd block it off and we'd put barbecues out on the street, and so that we'd wheel out the barbecues on the street the weekends, and so it was a real community. It was absolutely fantastic. Oh, so that that helped big time. Oh, huge, huge, huge help, huge help. Um, and, and so the authority thing, get on the authority thing. So what does that mean? Did you not discipline them at all? I didn't, I didn't discipline her kids. That was the, the, the that was the, that was the, the delineation. Yeah. So I, I could say to Carolyn, you need to sort this out. Yeah. And she'd sort it out. <laughs> okay. And that was kind of the agreement that we came to. And, and, and in most cases that worked. In most cases. <laughs> in most cases. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a black and white issue, but it, right. it definitely was a, a factor. I think the boys themselves felt safe in their own family units as well. I mean, the fact that we recognized that yeah. was good for them. That's great. And now get on to the, uh, so your faith. Yes. Picking up, what have you started going to church? Give me how that progressed. Well, Carolyn kind of led me to faith. Yes. Yeah, so, so, all right. So get back to the park, uh, the uh, school bench. Right? Yes. We're, we're going back to the bench. Did she ever invite you to church? Yes. How how many? How, how? Well, I said yes straight away because she started to answer questions yeah. that I didn't have answers to. And, you know, and Kylie, my previous wife, was, you know, she was she was a Christian. So this was kind of some yeah. of her life. Mm -hmm. yeah, but yeah. it wasn't for me. And now I found myself with a bunch of questions that somebody could answer. Mm. And so I lent into that. And so we started going to a church and then we got involved in a church plant very early on in the process. So I got to see how a church was put on the ground which was interesting. Huh. And then uh, we moved and went to another church and we got involved in every step of the way. I just kind of, she was involved anyway because she came out of ministry. And so I just went, okay, well that's, this is the norm, you know? So I just went in and started serving as part of what we do. And, and I'd always given anyway, because that was part of how I grew up. Yeah. And so that wasn't a normal, that wasn't an abnormal thing for me to do. I just switched from giving to a, you know charity organizations to, to giving to church and then just serving was just was what something she did and so i just went okay that's what we do and so that was kind of my experience and that brought strength and community to us all the time in those environments so the the church on the gold coast we were there in in australia and then they did a church plant as well and we bought another building and put another campus on the ground so we had been through that exercise of building the teams again from scratch and now, were you a part of buying these buildings? And no, no, no. They, they bought the buildings. I, I'm sure you were like, oh. <laughs> well, it was interesting to watch what was going on. I, I, was, I saw the church kind of as an over there thing around that because business wasn't talked about generally. Ah, I see. And so right, it was right, very right, much right, this right. was a faith thing. Business it's not like a weekend. No. And I had a friend and we, we had, we, 
we were became friends uh, at church, but actually we're both business guys and we're in business today. We own a company together today. And that was 25 years ago, 20 years ago. Wow. And so, but they didn't have this, this pathfinders or this marketplace ministry idea in there. And so ministry was just ministry thing. And I just a volunteer in the high team and, you know, whatever new people and, you know, whatever it needed to be, I kind of sat in the background and did those easy jobs around the edge. And so, and so tell me, Richie, uh, this mentality of you giving back charity, sir, you said it was, it was nothing new to me. So I just went from doing charity to serving at the church. How has that fared for you? Like in your life, how, talk to people about how important it is to serve others, how important it is to give back, how important it is to like, you know, serve. There's two things. One of the things I learned in the military is, is you know, and, and we talk about, a lot of people talk about it and, and they talk about it from a superficial perspective until mm. you're on a two-way range when, when people shoot back at you, you know, and, and you, you got to understand that occurs in the military is the majority of people who are, in the, who are serving in the military at some level, somewhere inside them are serving on something bigger. Mm. And so they're serving something bigger in them. And because I ended up in combat rescue, and uh, that means flying out and picking up broken people. That's, that's your job. You know, the siren goes off, you go out, you pick somebody up. Yep. And you do a lot of civilian rescues as well as, as the military stuff. And, and so that, that becomes a service that you do. And you, you start gets deeply ingrained into wanting to help people in those scenarios. And so that act of service becomes part of who you are as you go through that process. And so that was then, as resources came to my hands, I went, hang on a sec, I can do things that other people can't do by providing resources to things that can get started or people need stuff. And, and so that became part of what I did. You know, as opposed to just doing it to a charity here and a charity there. It was yeah. like, okay, now we're going to help build the church. And being involved in a church plant and seeing that right from the beginning, you know, where there's 30 people and you're standing in, you know, you're starting off with 30 people and, and someone <laughs> with a vision and you support that vision and get in behind it and then, you know, watch him grow the church to, to hundreds of people, you know, and buy buildings and stuff like that. You see all this occur in the church context, but you never really get inside it. Right. And, um, and so that was kind of part of what it do is always to be part of something bigger. You know, I think one of the things that people, you know, they, they're worried about the obligation piece of the service and what you find, and, and you know, we, we lead DNA amongst other things and we talk about this unlocking you. Yeah. And, and what happens when you serve other people is, is you end up with a, a level of fulfillment which you wouldn't otherwise have. And you get to see people that you impact on a daily basis. Mm. You know, when you're sitting in DNA, you hear this this story of people coming to awaken and they, their life gets changed. And then you see them on the teams walking around in an Usher shirt or a high shirt or whatever. And they've got this community around them. And it's a lock-in mechanism to help them build community in their life. But now they're doing something for other people. And they then get to see the people that they help come through the process and join the teams and so on and so forth. And so that's part of what we do and why we do it is to be part of something bigger and help people get unlocked in what they do and that, that act of service and really get into a community. I always talk about when people come into church, you know, particularly big churches, they, they walk into the, the, the foyer and there's all these people who know one another and they're sitting on the outer, on the outside of that. Yeah. And DNA's job is to bridge that gap, is to so they walk to a table and they get to know some people and then the next week when they come to church, they actually know somebody. 
And the more people they know, you build that stronger and stronger connection. And so we listen for the noise in the room to see how much connection is going on across the tables because it's a measure of how connected people are getting. And so it's incredibly intentional to open up those dialogues to get people to connect to one another and then build relationship at the table. And so when they come to church, they've actually got a group of people they know. And then by serving, they get into a bigger community and then they're starting to give back. And so there's a lot, there's a lot underneath this that is intentional around that. And for us, it's, it's a joy to see people coming in and get locked in and build a community and their life gets turned around. I and mean, yeah. we hear this story week in, week out of people's lives just getting transformed by what's happening around and in the church. And I'm so glad we got on this this flow right here, bro. Right? <laughs> this is the reason for doing it. Remember, I, remember I said we're just gonna something's just gonna start flowing. Yeah. This is so important, so profound, so relevant, because the thing that's missing mostly in people's lives is community. Oh, they've got none. They've got they've got these artificial, superficial relationships. And it's not until you walk through something in your relationship or in your marriage or with your kids, and you've actually got people who know your ish. And are actually come alongside you. And, and you know, I remember we, we lost a business um, a, a few years ago at church. I was in, in Pathfinders yeah, as a student I, when it happened. Yeah. And if it wasn't for the guys in the class, I wouldn't have got up. You know, I, it knocked me over badly. Uh, bri- briefly tell it, because I remember you telling this. So, so I had a software company. We'd raised capital from private equity and done the whole, you know, VC, build a software company thing. And we were doing okay. We weren't doing brilliantly, but we were doing pretty well. And we raised a bunch of capital before COVID. And we brought in another uh, private equity company to the table. And then um, and they started asking for strategy, and we're doing all this stuff as we grow in the business. And then, you know... April 14th, mm-hmm. I got a phone call and they fired me from my own company. Ratcheted me out, which is a, a, they issued more stock to devalue my stock to $300. So I lost 20 million bucks in one go. Wow. And ended up with no job, no income. Um, and we basically, everything we had was in this business. We spent years building this thing. And um, so I found myself in Pathfinders as this a only student. A few, this is only a few years ago. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a student. And I went, okay, how do I get up? And I remember Ernie, who was the, one of the leaders in the class, phoned me one day, he said, you've gone really quiet all of a sudden. You're usually really engaged in the class, and all of a sudden you're quiet. He said, what's going on? And I said, no, nothing, I'm fine. He said, no, no, what's going on? <laughs> Enough of the BS, what's going on? So I told him, and he said, okay, you've got to tell the whole class. And I went, I've got to do what? <laughs> he said, you've got to tell the whole class. And I said, I can't do that. And he said, why not? And I went, okay. So I told the whole class, you know, and we got on Zoom call that evening and, and I basically told them the story of what happened and where I was at. And you could see the jaws kind of hit the table. And, uh, and you know, the question was asked to me, what, what do you do next? And I'm going, I don't know. And so that was a question that resonated in my head. And I went, okay, I need to show these guys because I'm an instructor on yes. Pathfinders as well. Not yes. only a student, I was an instructor. I have got to get up. So I, I thought, right, let's develop a morning routine, you know, prayer. I've got to have affirmations. I've got to do visions, goal setting, exercise, this whole morning routine I developed every day. So I thought, right, I'm going to get up and I'll do all these things, one after the other, every morning. And so that changed my mentality. And at this point, Carolyn's going, okay, you need to get a job. You know, we need to get the income coming in. And I turned around and said, no, I'm going to go buy a company. <laughs> and so are we with no money. Okay, and- so then we're going to segue into this. <laughs> I went, I went and we, we executed 
that and we um, we actually went and bought a, a multi-million dollar company for, for no cash out of pocket. With ha- within how long of falling down? 365 days to the day, I closed on the company sitting on a catamaran off of Carbo. <laughs> Uh, and as she's signing the paperwork, as we're sitting out bobbing on the ocean tide, anchored, you know, out there. And so it was 12 months. A friend of mine, we'd gone down, to, we decided to get out of the house we were in because, you know, we didn't have the, the cost base, didn't have the revenue base to support it anymore. Yeah. And so we, we got out of that and we thought, right, let's put everything in storage and go to Mexico. Okay. Just go and experience and something. This, this is only the few years ago. Yeah, yeah, this is two years ago. Oh, my God. <laughs> And two years ago, during COVID, okay? So during COVID, we, we moved to Mexico. Okay? I didn't even know this. Oh, yeah. And so we decided to go to Mexico for a month just for a break. And a friend of mine phoned me up, and, and Randy's a lovely guy. I've got a huge amount of respect for him. And, and Randy Zimnock? No. Okay. Uh, another, another Randy. And, okay. and he said to me, uh, you know, I'm not using the boat. And, and we'd known him and his wife quite well, and, and they'd been through some stuff, and we'd walked them through with that on them. And he said, look, I'm not going to use the boat for the next period. Do you want to – should I send it down to Mexico, and you guys can look after it and use it down there? And so I said, well, of course, you know, and, and it's a beautiful catamaran, and I, I felt honored that he did that. But it, it allowed us to really get refreshed. Wow. And so we spent six months or five months in Mexico – uh, you know, spending a lot of time on the boat and Airbnbs and stuff like that. Um, and th- then we closed on the company while I was down there and um, and bought this multi-million dollar business uh, for, for no cash out of pocket. And But what, what happened is, you know, I, in the Pathfinders class, when yeah, I was in yeah, the class, tell me about that. I, you know, after four or five weeks and I started to get into this process and start to really move forward then and get deals on the table and engage in conversation, try to solution some of these problems that you get, um, you know, supposing basic cash flow problems, like how yeah. do I live right. from day to day? Um, the, the Ernie came to me and said, what are you doing to do? I said, well, I've got a morning routine. He said, you need to teach the morning routine to everybody to show them what you did to get up and get going again. And so those people around me that actually walked the journey with us, you know, were right there every step of the way, you know, encouraging us, turning up for dinner, bringing the food, you know, <laughs> stuff like that becomes real. You know, you, you've got real challenges. Um, and so the community around us actually carried us through that period. And then I taught how to get out of these scenarios and then, you know, go down two years later, we got multiple businesses and, you know, stuff that's going on at the moment is, 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 uh, is very, very large. And so you, it's that ability to that persistence and dogmatic belief and internal belief mm-hmm. to get up and then have the community around you to pick you up when you do get rough. Cause it is a very dark place when people take that stuff off you and, and the other thing we did was we did not turn around and punch back. You know, you've got two private equity companies with a combined asset worth of nearly $2 billion. Yeah. You don't want to poke the bear. Right. But mentally, you have to just forgive them and go, okay, they did that because that's what they did, but I have to move forward, and I can't spend the energy looking backwards mm. and getting revengeful for what they did and go, what did I take away? What did I learn from this experience? What were the good things, the bad things? How can I take what happened to me and apply it going forward and learn how to do this better and bigger and faster? And it's always the bad things that you learn the most. You know, You never find yourself in the scenario where – you you know when everything's going swimmingly well you, you don't learn anything really right it's only when it gets tough and it gets really hard that that sharpening goes on where you get refined and refined and refined and refined 
and and that's challenging when it happens to you you know a number of times and you sit there and go what am i doing wrong here you're actually doing nothing wrong what's happening is you're being refined mm. and what's happening now is a lot of those experiences over the businesses that over the years that have had good and bad are all coming back into one business now and and well multiple things that are going on but um, that that learning experience is the important thing. But in that case, it was just a willingness to get up and set a vision and go, I can do this. And, you know, I, Ronald Frazier is is a, a mentor of mine. He He's the guy who taught me how to do this. And uh, he, he ran a program, you know, and, and that's where I learned a lot of the techniques, which I now apply. But it's then taking that and going doing it, you know, and actually following through and going, even though my situation looks like this, I believe this. Therefore, I can go do this. And so we just found a path and then executed. <laughs> and so if you weren't in Pathfinders at that moment, how, how much harder would it have been to get up? I, I don't know whether I would have got up, oh, you know, because man. it's you would have gone and get a job. I mean, the pressure to get a job and get the income coming in was extreme, you know, and I'm sitting there going, okay, I've got to navigate how do I pay for stuff, you know, just going forward. You just simple stuff like, yeah. you know, how do you pay Anything. rent and, you know, how do you pay for food? And, you know, so you're having to navigate those simple problems. Now we had a little bit of savings, but not a lot. And I'm burning, you know, when you're going into lead gen scenarios for business, you're burning through cash really yeah. fast. And so we eventually got a small investor in and we bought them back out. They got 300% of their money when we paid them back. Um, you know, so we've done things along the way to solve the problems that are immediately in front of you. And a lot of it, you know, I, I remember talking to a guy, a very, very experienced entrepreneur, and he, he'd, he'd been through the highs and the lows. And he said to me, you know, solve the problems you can solve today and focus on those. He said, because if you go down the rabbit holes, you'll go down rabbit holes forever. Yep. And, and you just don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. But what you do know is what you've got to do today. And so have faith, have a vision of where you're going, have faith that you can get there and solve today's problems. And forget everything else. If you don't need to solve it today, don't solve it. Just focus on the short term. And what that stops you doing is going down the rabbit holes. Mm. And so you don't and go, what if this and what if that and what if that, you know, which is where your brain yes. lives. And that will just tear you apart. And so by bringing your focus back into today and you get to the end of the day and go, right, tomorrow's problems I'll solve tomorrow morning <laughs> and I'll start there. And then you get to the end of the day, right, we, we, we're through another day. And literally it's a day-by-day day thing. And then it comes, you know, two or three days and weeks and, you know, and slowly you accelerate out of it. But it's that ability, you know, I often say it's that dogmatic persistence, that stubbornness that says, no, I can, but you've got to have people around you that can help you pick you up again, because that's where it gets tough. And, and uh, Richie, this is, I got goosebumps as you were talking right there, because you just said it, because I, I, I've been talking to Kat recently, and because she's over, overwhelmed, quote yeah. unquote, and I told her exactly what you just said, wake up focus on today that's it don't think about tomorrow don't think about what can happen a month from now solve the because she's like i can't get anything done i'm like that's because the to-do list is never going to end it's never going to get shorter <laughs> and whatever that is never going to get shorter but the priorities are what problems do you have now right it hit that home again you got to focus on because otherwise you will lose your mind you, you will lose your mind and, and what happens is if you lose hope and and what mm. the rabbit holes do is 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 drown you in things that may or may not happen. You know, false evidence appearing real is fear. Yep. And and so what happens is the fear starts to build up. And ninety nine point nine percent of the things you might think might happen don't actually happen. And so by focusing yourself in the short term, you avoid that problem. As long as you know approximately where you're heading to 
and what you're trying to achieve than just solve today's problems today. And it's amazing how long you can go on fresh air you know, with no income. You'd be absolutely astounded how far you can go if you actually put your mind to it. I'm laughing because I've been through so much cash flow stuff in the last 20 years of my life, bro. Like, I don't know if I, I call it the weekly miracle. Well, that's it. But, it, but you're 20 years down and, and it's still happening. Yeah. And so that's the thing that people don't understand is that in most cases, there is a solution to the problem. The question is, are you resourceful or are you worried about resources? Yes. And so if you're resourceful, you'd be amazed how you can solve problems and the things you can do to solve problems. And you know, and you're in these conversations for buying these businesses and you haven't got a dime to your name and you're having the conversations about buying the business. Now, you know how to solve the cash problem, but it's not your money or it is in sort of, but it, it's one of those things that it's a mental game more than it is anything else. You know, entrepreneurship and, and failure and recovery is a, is a mental game about what did you learn in that experience and, and how can you avoid or how can you put something in place? And I had a conversation with a bunch of finance guys in New York and they're going, we're going to do this. And I'm going, no, we're not, because if we do this, you'll end up down here. And yeah. they're going, oh, crap, we didn't know that. Because you've been there. Because you've been there. And so you see these things that other people don't see. And so that's what the experience gives you, that sharpening that goes mm. on. And, and it's tough because you have to just, you know, the, the, the renewing of your mind in terms of what has to happen in your mind. And that's where the morning routine came in. I had to get myself in a place where, regardless of where I mentally woke up, I had to get to a point of high performance as fast as I could mm. to be able to get the rest of the day to perform and then just get to the end of the day in some cases and then go, right, now we can deal with tomorrow's problems tomorrow. Yeah, because you just make it through one day. That's it, that's all you need to do. <laughs> and then you're there for tomorrow. As long as you can get up the following day, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep getting up, keep getting up, keep getting up, and you'll okay. get there. And so segue now into, because um, we're getting close to having to land the plane. We've got another 28 minutes to go. Okay. All right, bro? You put a cap on me. Nobody puts a cap on me. we got 28 <laughs> minutes. So now segue into, you said you bought a business with no money. Get yes. into that story right away. So one of the things about buying companies and, and is and, and I'll, uh, let me just segue to a small yeah, story. When I was when I was with uh, with the software company and we'd raised these millions of dollars and you know we had these private equity companies and I went to a private equity dinner at Christmas in Chicago and I was late and I, my plan was to go home get changed into a suit and then turn up to this thing but I turned up in jeans boots because it was snowing outside jeans a t shirt and a big big parker. And I walk into a room and there's 400 suits in the room. And I went, oh God, talk about feeling intimidated. All these private equity guys in their dark suits, white shirts, dark ties, you know. And I'm sitting there going, oh. So I grab my little plate of food and my glass of wine and I hobble off to the corner. Hobble off. <laughs> and kind of go, I'm going to get out of here as fast as I can. <laughs> and I'm standing there and this old guy comes up next to me and he's dressed in t-shirts, jeans and boots. Exactly the same as me. And he said, <laughs> you figured it out yet? And I said, figured what out? And he said, who everybody in this room works for? He said, all the guys in suits work for the guys in jeans. Come with me. <laughs> and he took me to the corner. And in the corner was about six old guys, all in jeans and, you know, casually dressed, sitting around one table. And nearly every person in this room worked for them. Wow. And that, for me, just gave me a paradigm shift about, hang on a sec, we're the apex predators in the room. We're the entrepreneurs. These guys all work for us. 
And that mental shift for me was one of the biggest things wow. that changed how I thought about this problem. Because you have to believe internally that you can buy a company. Mm. And it's like buying a loaf of bread. I mean, when Roland talks about it, he talks about like buying loaves of bread. I mean, it's, it's, he talks about it so casually because he's done so many transactions. But what it does is that mental attitude is everything. You have to believe you can. And then you have to learn how. And the how is actually easier than buying a house. Okay, nobody checks your credit. Nobody checks anything to do with you personally. But you can put together these packages that allow this to happen. But you have to believe internally that you can do this more than anything else. Right. There is more businesses for sale in today's marketplace than you can believe. And most of them, over 75% of them, will just shut their doors because nobody will buy them. And these are multi-million wow. dollar companies. And the people, are, because they're, they're getting old, they want to retire, they're tired, they're getting divorced, you know, something's happened to them, something's happened to their family, they've got medical problems, whatever it is. There's a multitude of reasons why businesses shut down. And in most cases, I think only 20-something percent of businesses actually sell. Okay, so the rest of them just shut down. Right. And these are <clears throat> solid, long-running businesses. And so what you find is, is you, 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 once you understand that, you can find these everywhere. And then you've got to find what you want. And there's ways of doing that. And then you've got to create a package. But, you know, there's 211 ways of financing an acquisition. And not one of them involve you putting your hand in your pocket. Okay? So there's multitudes of ways of doing deals. And a lot of it's just this pure creativity. And so a lot of people think there's a bunch of rules. And we started yeah, off with this. Yeah. There is no rules. Okay, the rules are, what does this person want? The best one I've ever heard yeah, give it to me. is a um, guy wanted to buy a hotel in New Mexico. And I think it was a 280-room hotel, you know, four-star resort kind of thing, pool and everything. And it was on the market for $5 million. And he got talking to the owner, and the owner's family lived in Oregon, and he wanted to move into this housing estate in Oregon in the hills. And there's never a property for sale up there. And so Chris went, well... He said, is that what you want? He said, all I want to do is move up there and have maybe five grand a month coming in for the rest of my life. And Chris said, well, what about five grand a month for the next five years if you could live up there? And he said, well, that, that'd be awesome. He said, because I've got some savings, that'd be good. And so Chris went to this housing estate and literally went door to door till he found a house someone would sell. <laughs> and I think he bought the house for like 485000 Okay, back to back the transaction, swapped the hotel over for the house, borrowed against the hotel to pay for the house, and then gave the guy five grand check every month. So he took the loan out, paid, paid off the mortgage, gave the guy the house, pays him five grand a month, and took over a $5 million hotel for effectively 500 grand. Ten exactly, to, yeah. 10 to 1. Yeah. Okay, so, and all it was is about finding out what people really want. And when you get that right mm. and you understand that, and they don't, you know, they're, they're ready to transact. Because a lot of times you go right to the line and, you know, they'll not. And we've been in businesses where we've gone and we found issues in companies and you tend to find those. And they've wanted to give us the company for a dollar. You know, five, six, seven million year turnover, you can buy it for a dollar. You know, because yeah. they're so tired, they're just done. Yeah. And so a lot of people find themselves in a situation where the business has paid them an income, which is great. But actually, when they start to look, people look in, they can't sell it because it's not worth anything. Right. Because they're what we call a dancing bear. And so you, we need to get them out. And so we've got 13 steps which will help them get out. Or we'll take over the business and we'll get them out. 
um, and and get those businesses. And so that's how you do it. And a lot of it's just about deal making is what do they want and how can you structure something to do that? And can the business buy itself? So the business pays for itself when you buy a business. Right. So you buy a loaf of bread and the loaf of bread pays for itself. That's effectively what's going on. And as long as you understand how to do that and pay the owner, then you're good. You can create a deal. And so that's how we do it. And and so it's not difficult to do. And the other way is to, to create what we call earning models where you earn the right to be at the table by sacrificing time or expertise for exchanges of equity and slowly build up a position where you can buy the other person out. I'm in a business at the moment, and we've done a what we call a consulting for equity deal. So I own a chunk of the business. cost me nothing to get in there. I've tripled the revenue. And now I'm trying to buy the other person out completely with cash. And and so we can do that. Well, the business is going to buy them out. I'm not yeah, going to buy them right, out. Right. So now I, I will own a business outright. Now, they're vacillating, but I had a guy, you know, a year ago, I want to sell my business, and I don't want to sell anymore. I'm, oh, I'm not ready to leave. And phoned me three weeks ago, and we've got a deal. So... <laughs> You just got to be persistent and patient with the process, but you've got to understand that it is really just about the art of a deal. You know, it's about that deal making capability, about finding the structure that's going to work for the other person mm. that can work for you, and how to understand the finances to pay for that. And and that process is mindset. Ninety nine percent of it is mindset. mindset. Just mindset. You've got to believe. And I've taught this to people in the church, and, yeah. and there's multiple people who've bought buying companies left, right, and center now. You know, I think only he's on to his fourth acquisition now. <laughs> yeah. But it's just it's just saying, yes, you can. Yes. This is possible. You can do it. And it's much easier, much safer to buy a business than it is to start a business. And so g- give me a story of, because uh, I remember you telling a couple of stories of ones you've done, some creative deals. Give me another. Give me a story of a creative deal you've done before. The, 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 one of the, the one of the funnest deals I've ever done was a quilting business, yeah. and 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 I got I got approached. I used to take my mother-in-law to the quilt store on a Saturday, and you know I was supposed to be ten till two. I was there, and you know, and then it's ten till three and ten till four, and then you know I'm sitting there going, okay, I'm waiting for hours. So I got to know Pauline who owned it, and so eventually she phoned me up one day out of the blue and said, I, I, I'm I'm going to lose my business. I need help. And I'm going, well, why are you phoning me? And she said, I don't know what to do. And so I said, okay, well, let me let me find out. You know, let's come over and talk. And so she had five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars worth of short-term debt yeah. that she had to pay. And they, it got to the point where these people are starting to take legal action against mm. her and foreclosing on her. And so I said, okay. And I, I kind of looked at it and went, you know, and she showed me the PL and it showed around five million in revenue. I'm going, how can you be losing money Same. here? And I said, look, I, I don't know the business, but I'm going to take over the business for you because she was worried about losing a house more than anything else. She said, take the business off me and just pay me a salary and then, so I don't lose my house. That was her thing. And I said, well, okay. So I said, okay, I'll take over the debt for the business, the, the business for the value of the debt because I really don't know this business, but I can basically take you off the hook for that and I think I can navigate my way out of it. So once I'd signed the contract, which was literally a one and a half page contract to acquire this business, I knew nothing about this business at all other than they were in debt yeah. and the revenue in the bank accounts. And I went, <laughs> yeah. okay. So I, 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 and I got on the phone with the people that she owed money to and I basically said, look, this is the deal. I've set a contract in place here which allows me to buy the business and if you will work with me, I will pay you off. But if you foreclose on me, then I'm walking away and the thing will go bankrupt and you can deal with the bankruptcy court when you feel like it. And when I got to the end of the thing, I had one guy who wouldn't budge. So I'd said, you know, we'll start payments in 60 days. We'll do 20 cents in a dollar and, you know, two-year payments, all sorts of creative mechanisms. Yes. One guy wouldn't budge. 
So I had to write an $18,000 check to take over a $5 million a year business. I walked into the business and actually started to get to know the business. So I go down the store and they've got a 6,000 square foot store full of fabric, you know, as a quilting store yeah, is. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, there's a lot of fabric here, man. You know, I could do a sale and do a fabric sale. And then one of the staff, and in, Are you, have you been upstairs yet? And I'm going, there's an upstairs? <laughs> so I go upstairs and there's 6,000 square feet of fabric, eight feet, you know, deep. Oh my God. Like the millions of dollars worth of fabric. And I'm going, this is what's happened. She's just bought. Every time these sales guys have turned up to sell a fabric, she's just bought and just bought and bought and bought and bought and bought and bought and bought. And, bought. and she just has no control over her wallet. And so I went, okay, right, we're doing a sale. You know, 60% off sale for fabric. <laughs> Put a million dollars in the bank in 30 days. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Paid off the $584,000 or whatever I owed these guys. And then put $500,000 in the till. And went, right, now we got a business. We're doing $5 million a year. we got half a million dollars in the bank. <laughs> Let's go. Wow. And we turned that into a quilting training business with DVDs. And we used to sell the DVDs, you know, and, and then 20% of people would buy $508 worth of product off the back of the DVDs. So we eventually just started giving them away because it was just, I put them in the front of magazines and all sorts of stuff. But it was a really cool business wow. to be part of. But that was probably the most creative deal. But when you're going into it, you just don't know what people want. She was terrified of losing a house, which she owed, owned. Yeah. And so she said, well, make me a salary and take the business away from me and you know, just pay me a salary so I can keep my house. That was her thing. And I went, uh, okay, I can yeah, do that. It, and it's I can identify with this because... Back when the the prior when we had the furniture and mattress store, like prior, it was like nine years ago. That was we we were doing we were humming fifteen employees humming two locations, but it got to the point where we were drowning. Mm. And I just wanted out. I didn't, even, I, I didn't even care. I just wanted out. I didn't even. I just didn't want to deal with it anymore. And that's where people get to, and it's that that is where. And, and what you're doing is you're facilitating the exit because what they're going to do is ultimately shut the business down. Right. So if you can pick up the business which is operating, got clients and revenue and assets and all that, then take it. And that's where she was at. She was going to run away, you know, yeah. like and just let this thing collapse into a heap. So just by stepping in and taking the business, you're able to solve the problems which they can't solve, you know, and, and deal yeah. with it in different yeah, yeah, ways. Yeah. And a lot of it comes down to creativity is, you know, the fact that I was willing to get on the phone with these guys and just start dialing for dollars. You know, that's what I call it. He's dialing for, dialing for dollars. You know, I got to the point where I had to write an $18,000 check. That was it. That was it. You know, and, and you pick up a $5 million a year business and you're going, okay, how can I do that all the time? Well, this is how you do it all the time is you've got to be in the conversations. You've got to be talking to people all the time and eventually deals will start to come to you all the time. And people are going, I want out, I want out. I did an accounting company phone me up. We, we're done. We're tired. We want to retire in the next three years. Can you buy us out, please? And oh, by the way, we just want a salary for the next three or four years. Then you can have the business. And it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> And so would you would you agree that the majority of like let's say business owners like that, like family businesses, or they just want out? They get tired at the end. When you've been at this for twenty <laughs> yeah, years, yeah. you're just tired. And what they don't understand is is how to how to sell a business and what the multiples are and how that process actually works. And when you go through that process, and I've sold them several companies, is it, there's actually a process to it. And, and they're looking at very specific things. And if you can mold that business into that shape, then you can sell it for a lot of money. But most people don't know what the shape is, so they don't know what they're aiming at. And one of the deals I'm doing is saying, right, take us for five years and get us a 15 to 20 times multiple 
on the business. And you know, when you do that, you sell a business for three times its profit. You know, when it's or two times its profit when it's when it's a certain shape. Yeah. So let's say you're doing a million a year. You sell it for three times. You're going to get three million dollars. So the same business three years later, doing a little bit more revenue maybe, but not by much, and you sell it for fifteen times. You get fifteen million dollars for that business. That's a big difference. Yeah. And so if you can do that process, then you can take it from three to fifteen million. Now, most people don't know what that process looks like and what they have to do. You know, they have to get off the org chart. You know, it's one of the simpler things. You, yeah. you, should, you should not have to turn up. One of the businesses, I don't turn up. I'm not in, and it still pays me, yeah. but I, I don't do anything. Every now and then I have an ops call, but there's a, there's a call this morning and there's a management meeting call. I'm not even on it. <laughs> it's, it's mind boggling. I love when you talk about this stuff, man. Now, when, when does EBITDA come into, into play? Like you have EBITDA. Do you ever do a multiple mm. times that? Well, when you're when you're selling, buying or selling, EBITDA multiples are a, a, a label. You know, we, we use SDE in small businesses. It's sellers' discretionary earnings. There, okay. So, so that's the amount of money an owner will take out, and that includes the fact that the business is paying for his insurance and his car, and right. you know, his holidays and his travel. And you wrap all that up, and that's the seller discretionary earnings. Yep. And then you do the multiple on that. the The challenge is that depending on the size of the business and the size of the profit then depends on the multiple that you actually buy at. So EBITDA is a, is a financial term, earnings before interest tax, depreciation, yep. amortization. But really, it's about net profit. Now, they're, they're different in, in pure accounting terms, but for most business owners, there's no difference. And, right. and so an EBITDA multiple is the multiple of the business. Now, your accountant will say, well, it's a three times EBITDA. It's as many times EBITDA as you, as you want. And we bought a business recently, and we valued the business between minus 80,000 and 1.7 million. Okay, that's how varied the, the, the thing. Wow. So we did an EBITDA multiple, and then we did an adjusted EBITDA multiple, and then we did an asset valuation, and then we did a revenue valuation. And so you can get four different valuations, all of which are valid. Now, what's interesting is the EBITDA valuation is kind of the gap standard mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, That was minus $80,000. Okay, really? So, yeah, so the EBITDA, true EBITDA number, when we worked it out, they were losing money. Wow. And that's because there's non-cash activity in there, which makes it a bit more complicated. But then we said, okay, let's just assume they didn't spend all this money on this stuff. So we just added $500,000 back in. That was our adjustment. And so that then we got an EBITDA multiple back out, and that's the one we actually bought the company on. So we just said, well, you didn't really do that, or you wouldn't really do that again sometime in the future, maybe not. So let's just make you nice and take it out. And so we just modified the numbers to suit ourselves. Yeah. Now, there's ways of doing that that are saying, well, this is a one-time expense and you're only going to do this once and this actually really isn't going to happen. But So there's a bunch of complexity in there. But fundamentally, you're just saying, look, if you ran this properly, you wouldn't do these things and therefore the business would look like this and that's what we'll pay you on. I and see. that's called an adjusted EBITDA. Yeah. What, what did you evaluate that at then? That, that came out at about $586,000. So why wouldn't you do the minus 81? Because they wouldn't have sold it. Oh, that's true. Because they were getting nothing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, they were paying us 80 grand <laughs> <That's> <laughs> in that case. But what it did is set the floor and said, look, if you want to do this properly, this is how it works. And so we teach people when we're buying their company how to do valuations because I want them to understand what we're thinking. Mm. And when I did that with the deal I'm, I'm doing uh, at the moment, there's, he's going, I, I just had no idea. And I you know, can pull all sorts of numbers and stats and show him – graphs and pictures of why this is true and then he went well how do we get from three times to 15 times and how much of the business do i have to give you for you to take me there because that means if i do if i give you half the business i'm still going to walk away with seven and a half million right 
And we go, well, let's see if we can get to 21 times if we do the following things. And he's going, okay, how much of the business do you want? And that's the conversation mm. you get to, is what do I have to give you guys to come and help me do that over the next three to five years? Ah. And my time is I'm a, on the board, I have one meeting a week. That's it. And we own half the company. That's beautiful. <laughs> but we can do that. And, and because they're getting such a big outcome at the other end that that's what yeah, they want yeah. to do. They want to pay off the house and go on holiday and go and do whatever the hobby they want to do for the rest of their life. And we're just writing the checks. And, and, and Richie, so the craziest part about this, man, this story is not all, just not even, what, two to three years ago. Yes, we were wiped out. You, you were wiped out. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to this. For all of you that think you've got the problems that nobody else has, <laughs> you think you're running a business as an entrepreneur and things aren't going that great, you have cash flow issues, welcome to the club and listen to what Richie just said. It just is what it is. You just got to, you're going to get hit. Get He's wiped it. out. <laughs> so if you've been in business for any length of time, Richie, anybody, any entrepreneur, what's the, what's the number? Like if you've been in business for five years, you've, you've gotten your clock cleaned. Is it 10 years? What's what I, the guarantee what, here? Well, there's no, there's no guarantee and that's the problem. Okay. You can, you can have these varying degrees of success throughout your life and sometimes you do big and sometimes you don't and sometimes it's ongoing, but it's a, it's a craft. It's a skill. You need your 10,000 hours. But when you speak to nearly every very successful entrepreneur, you know, the guys who are billionaires and they're worth $500 million or billion dollars and you start listening to their story, they, they all have the same story. Yeah. I grew, I crashed, I grew, I crashed. And there's just a different number of crashes they've gone through. But in all cases, they've all been wiped out at some point, at least once. At least once. At least once. And when I talk about wipeout, I'm talking about wiped out. And they come back and you sit there and go, how do you do that? Well, that, this is part of the process because you've got to learn. And, you know, you get two or three times, you, you know, you start to go, okay, what's going wrong here? But sometimes it's not your fault. You know, and, and other people do things to you. And the question is, what yeah. do you do next? And so I always say to people, you, you know, it, it's, not about, it's, it's not about what happens to you. It's about how you respond to what yep. happens to you. And, and this idea of resourcefulness, because people say, oh, you need money for my start of my business. No, you don't. You don't. You absolutely do not. Go buy a company that does that and then start there, and that will cost you nothing. And then you're doing yeah. three million a year before you start. Or if you're going to start, then you've got to find a way to get off the ground. You've got to find a way how to get a customer and how to get paid to do something or deliver something and do it well and then get to them to say nice things about you. And you can do that, you know, from scratch. I mean, I always like MLM businesses, you know, because they've always got this startup pack. You pay yeah. your 90 bucks or 100 yeah. bucks or whatever it is, and they teach you about business. But actually what they do is they put you in personal development programs. That's right. Because that's the thing you need more than anything else is – to face the mirror and go, where am I lacking and, and, and what I'm doing? And, you know, the internet levels the playing field. I mean, anybody can play any level in anything. But always remember, people are selling to people. It's always a people game, you know. And in one of the businesses I bought, I just got on the phone every day and said, let's see what the sales process looks about. You know, we, we talked about briefly is that we, you know, get rid of all the sales guys because they wouldn't get on the phone. Just get on the phone. Yeah. Tripled revenue. Like, we just phoned people up. It's not hard. Just phone them up and say, what do you want? I want to buy this. Well, what about that as well? Oh, yeah, I'll do that. Okay. Sign here. <laughs> Go. Yeah. But if you don't phone them up, then you never have those conversations and, and you never figure out what the problem is. This, this, uh, it's, I love that you said that. And I wanted everybody to, especially entrepreneurs, know that every, every single one of them has, gotten their, has been cleaned out, has been wiped out. Oh, at least question. once. At least once. 
I mean, what is it? Walt Disney went bankrupt like what seven times or something? But you, you know, I remember I, I met a guy who's a billionaire recently, and and my first question out of my mouth is, "How did you get here?" And he looked at me. He said, "Well, I walked down from my house." And I said, "No, no, no. you know what I'm asking?" He said, oh. "He said you want the full story or the short story?" I said, "I want the full story." And he said, "Okay." For the next hour, he told me his story. And man alive, there's a book by uh, the guy, Anderson Horowitz is the largest venture capital company in the world. And Horowitz wrote a book called The Hard Stuff About the Hard Stuff. And everybody looks at him as the biggest venture capital in the world and goes, oh, you know, he was so lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The price he had to pay to get to where he's got is in that book, The Hard Stuff About the Hard Stuff. And it just gives you a little taste of what it really looks like. I'm getting this book. To get into some serious pain. And, and, you know, I remember reading it going, okay, I don't have problems. <laughs> if he can do that, I can do what I've got to deal with. And he was dealing with it at a whole different oh scale of problems. I mean, just the train smashes he went through to get to where he's got to is, and there's a price. And, and people are not willing to pay it. Not willing to pay the price. They're That's the number to- one reason most people will never be massively successful, live in the top 1% of incomers because they're not willing to pay the price. It's a, it's a very uncomfortable price. It's a hugely uncomfortable price, and, and a lot of it's around ego. Yes. You know, and, and What are people thinking about me? That's right, and they're concerned about the perception people have because I can't pay for, for dinner or I can't pay for food or I can't pay my rent. But, and what they're not realizing is the price. But the guys that come alongside you that do understand this can go, okay, let's go. Let's solve the problems we've got to solve today and then work with you to get you moving forward. And so what, what is it, what, like, why the psychotic people like us as entrepreneurs, what is it? Why do we want this, like, what are we, what's the difference in the, the chemistry of our brain? Why would we put ourselves through this? We want to leave a footprint on the world. There it is. We want to leave a legacy. Come on. You know, I, I remember one of the things. We're landing, and, the, plane, and, we're landing the plane on this because you're shutting me off. Anthony Torino <sighs> said something last night. Go. And he said, you know, the hardest thing to do is to write your own epitaph. Mm. You know, you're dead as a board, dead as a, 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 a stiff as a board, dead as a do- in a box at the front of a church. Three people are going to get up and speak. Your wife, a business partner, and a friend. What are they going to say? That's your epitaph. And when you write that, that defines your legacy and the footprint on the world you live. And so you're not going to take anything with you, but you are going to leave an imprint on people. And what is that? That's why we do it. That's why we do it. It's That's what drives me. It's yeah, why I get up every day. It's why, what drives me. It's what drives me in, in the Pathfinders community, in the stuff I teach, in the people I help, in, in driving forward to set an example to others, to break down the doors, you know, and to keep reaching. It's, you know, every day all I think is God has put me here for a reason and I'll be damned if I'm not going to give everything I got every day doing what I do. You get one shot at it. One shot. <laughs> you might as well make it go. <laughs> one shot. Uh, make, speaking make of play for it. Yeah, right. Oh, Richie, man. I wish we could keep going. But this is this would be a good teaser, even though it was only an hour and a half. <laughs> it was an hour and a half, by the way. Is that an hour and a half already? Uh-huh. Okay. At ten, we're at 9.56. Yes. So we've got two more minutes. <laughs> Hit him with one more thing uh, about inspiring people to go for it right now. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you, when you are an entrepreneur and you're starting to break through doors and starting to, to achieve things, a lot of it's, you know, when you, when you learn stuff and you're able to do your testimony and people can share mm. how you've walked through it, they don't feel alone. They don't feel as though they can't because everybody's been in front of you. And the, the thing I did is start to research successful people and go, what's their story? Where do they get to? How do they get there? What do they have to put up with 
what price did they have to pay? And then you get some context on your own life. And then you go, okay, this is the price I'm willing to pay. Wives are not so easy to carry along that journey, but <laughs> that's the price. That's why we do it, yeah, for sure. And this is exactly why I started Real Deal Talk, exactly why I have this format, which is all about the backstory, mm-hmm. all about what you've gone through, and you clearly laid that out today, and t- only two, three years ago, you were wiped clean. Look at him now. He's a part of one of the biggest deal, not one of the biggest deal that he's ever been a part of in his entire life right now, right? Right now. Right now. Right we didn't now. get into it because I didn't want to, I didn't want to, let's say. Give us another yeah. eight weeks and then the, 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 the deal will be done. <laughs> the deal will be done. Then we'll, then we'll do another 2.0 podcast. We'll talk about that journey. Um, Richie Hale, I can't thank you enough, my man. It's been an absolute honor. Uh, I appreciate you, bro. I love you, man. You're one of my guys. I'm so I feel so honored and so um, blessed to have you in my life. You're one of the guys in my life that right now, with everything I'm going through, what we're about to launch, uh, I knowing that you're in my corner uh, gives me, like you said, I have got this community around me. Like um, I felt alone for about 18 years outside of my family, but now with guys like you in my life, I'm like I have. There's absolutely no no doubt I'm gonna be massively successful with our next venture because I've got guys like you in my life to be able to call and say, hey, you know, help me out here. What do you think? You know, mm-hmm. uh, so I appreciate you, my brother. Appreciate Big you. Time. Thank you, Seth, for your time. You got it. Real deal talk, ladies and gentlemen. That's a wrap. Uh...